Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance, a, a podcast, podcast about romance novels. About technology. About football. About corporate mergers. About CTE. About trends. About our modern dating culture. <laughs> but most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are talking about The Right Swipe, a novel by Alicia Ray. Do you want to read the back or do you want me to? You got it. Here we go. Rhiannon Hunter may have revolutionized romance in the digital world, but in real life, she only swipes right on her career and the occasional hookup. The cynical dating app creator controls her love life with a few key rules. One, nude pics are by invitation only. Two, if someone stands you up, block them with extreme prejudice. Three, protect your heart at all costs. That was not included in the back, (laughs) by the way. Only there aren't any rules to govern her attraction to her newest match, former pro football player Samson Lima. The Mm. sexy and seemingly sweet hunk woos her one magical night. Ellipses. And then disappears. (gasps) We thought she buried her hurt over Samson ghosting her until he suddenly resurfaces months later, still big, still beautiful, and in league with a business rival. He says he won't fumble their second chance, (laughs) but she's wary. A temporary physical partnership is one thing, but a merger of hearts? Surely that's too high a risk. The right swipe. The right swipe. So let's clarify some things that the back of the jacket chooses to keep mysterious. Not really a business rival. So Rhiannon has established a company called Crush, which I think is supposed to be like Bumble. Crush is like the antithesis of Swipe, which is Tinder. Doesn't really explain why Crush is the antithesis of Swipe. It's because women start the conversation and it has a feminist ethos. Right. It says it has a feminist ethos, but we don't really get details on what that means. Told, not shown. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's obviously Bumble because women have to initiate the conversation. Another feature of Bumble is that you have to do it in like 24 hours or you lose your match. And I recently read Vice Identities has this new weekly column about people talking about their sex lives in the modern era. And a non-monogamous lesbian said she can't use Bumble because lesbians can't make up their mind about something within 24 hours. <laughs> Zing. Because they just take it very seriously. Anyways, so that's not a very feminist ethos when you think about it like who was in the workshop for that app well you know yeah you know what I mean and like that's one of the things where I think well-intentioned and ignorant feminism really gets ahead of itself and yeah yeah constantly tripping over itself well and then the other thing is men still do what they do on tinder they still just match 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 and then don't respond to you the same thing happens anywho because men treat it like a numbers game which is like essentially it is yeah but Samson Lima is associated with the match.com. Get ready for it. Matchmaker.com. Which I felt like was like a weird thing of match.com, but also like it had major eHarmony vibes. Oh yeah, totally. It's oh, like, you know, it's hard. I can't like remember the differences between them. Like I know OkCupid was like a little bit of like a porous membrane through which Tinder and match.com and eHarmony kind of like it was those a birth you- canal. <laughs> it was a birth canal for it Tinder. It sure was. It was the slippery wet canal that Tinder came through because OkCupid was free. So anybody could sign up. eHarmony was really expensive. And at the time, late 90s, early aughts was like no gays. Yeah. Which was crazy even then. And yeah. that's how Match.com got involved because they're like, oh, you don't want to hang out with your fucking terrible homophobic grandpa eHarmony? Come hang with us. Yes. But they both involve like really long personality questionnaires and mm-hmm. they filter people who you see and make recommendations yep. based on those. But you still kind of build a profile. Okay, yep. Cupid was just a profile, totally free to join. You yep. could talk to anybody. And anybody could talk to you. And anybody could talk to you. I mean, it's still kicking. It sure is. It's still happening. So matchmaker.com in the book functions as a sort of match.com eHarmony dinosaur that's trying yeah. to rebrand itself in the modern age of apps. Should we explain, because maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with Tinder. Sure. First of all, congratulations. <laughs> 
You came of age you did in a different it. place. You did it. Okay, so tender. How does tender work? Well, not that I would know because I've been in a committed long-term relationship for nine years, but I do know. So what you do is you link it to like your Facebook or your Instagram. You select a main photo, and this is what is going to appear on people's screens. You choose your main profile photo. You can choose some ancillary photos. You write a short bio. Two sentences max. Two sentences max. I'm a Hufflepuff who only drinks cold brew, and I like fall. Yeah, exactly. It's like for example, I wrote a Tinder profile for a friend once that she found to be wildly successful. It said, Mama, we made it Tinder. (laughs) People really liked it. Anyway, so you have this short little profile. You can also, if you link your Facebook, it'll show mutual friends that you have with the person. It'll also show mutual interests that you've highlighted on Facebook. But anyways, that's it. So basically you open up the app, you see pictures of people you might want to have sex with. If you want to have sex with them, you swipe their photo to the right. If they swiped your photo to the right, then you have a match. And then you can start talking to each other. If you swipe left, forget about it. If you're like, I need more information than just their face, you're kind of missing the point, but you can swipe (laughs) up and you can read the little profile and you can look at the photos and the mutual interests. Tender came after Grindr, didn't it? It sure did. It It kind of ripped off Grindr. Grindr is a whole world that I'm less familiar with, um, to be honest. Uh, They don't want me there and I don't want to be one of those hags who's trying to make friends with a dude who's trying to meet other dudes to grind on other dudes yeah yeah women do that did you know that they start grinder profiles so that they can attempt to get a gay best friend I don't even want to touch that with a 10 foot pole I'm like if a gay person doesn't want to be your friend like don't sabotage their apps or their spaces like yeah fucking do it organically or like like, not at all use the app for what it's meant for yeah you know what I mean it's not everything has to be for you you don't have to see a tool and say how can I use this for my own benefit Mm -mm. that wasn't designed for you so then Bumble came out Bumble is basically the same principle but you can also meet friends you can set it to meet friends Tender and Bumble you can set to meet men or women you also set a geographic radius in which to find matches age limits things you have filters but Bumble you have to respond within the first 24 hours and the woman has to initiate the conversation I don't know how that works on same sex I don't either that's a really great question but part of the reason why Bumble came along is because women were experiencing a lot of harassment Mm -hmm. on Tinder. Like they were getting unsolicited dick pics. They were just getting harassed. Yeah, which Um, are all things that can still happen on Bumble. It's just you started talking to them. So somehow that makes it your responsibility. Maybe you have a better, like your filter is stronger. Like you can like trust your gut instinct based on people's five pictures and a weird thing that they say about themselves. Like I like dad jokes and Dan Savage. But you can only talk to people on Tinder if you both match with each other. So, you know, here's the thing, Bumble. What's the actual solution? To unsolicited dick pics? Yeah. I don't know. It's not Bumble. No. People make a thing about unsolicited dick pics a lot in the right swipe. I know we got a little off topic, but it certainly is something. And solicited dick pics are also something that gets discussed. Yeah, it's a brave new world. I guess. That's another point, too. It's like people Ah! were writing salacious things to one another in letters in like, you know, the 1600s and Rousseau drew dick pics. Everybody likes to act like, oh, it's so new. It's so complicated. It's so stupid. Everything's dumb. And we have a 0.06 second attention span. And I'm like, Rousseau drew dick pics. I'm sure Shakespeare drew dick pics. It took took longer than 0.06 seconds to draw a dick pic though. Does it take that long, you know? But I will say also, like, I don't think anybody's just like opening up their waistband, taking a picture and then texting it. Like, I think people think a lot about out their genitalia photos like frame it properly yeah exactly and you need something next to it so you have like a gauge mm-hmm. there was a great tumblr called rate my dick pic right. and she had some really specific rules one included like you should have a hand in the photo so that it's not totally dehumanized <laughs> a portion of a face a hand the angle she was very particular about the lighting Angles what you're wearing really matter like the clothing that you're wearing that can have so an like effect backdrop it's like if your sheets are visible Visibly dirty, mm-mm, guys. D- visibly dirty sheets? Who? People. You want to hear mm-mm, something mm-mm. I learned recently? Mm-mm. Is that Martha Stewart, whenever she came out with her line for Kmart, she was like, they convinced me to do towels and colors other than white because I understand that poor people do their laundry less. <laughs> Slash do their own motherfucking laundry. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Anyways, also, if you have small children, God, so many things about that sentence are just so ignorant in every way. She had small children. She wasn't doing her own laundry. I know. You know, it's like 
Somebody said something to me about like, how do you start your collars? And I was like, what? I don't. I don't. I don't even know how to do that process. Like, Hey babe, we're post-nuclear age. The collars starch themselves. Right? Or like you put the little thingy in it and then you like take it out when you wash it and you put it back in. Oh, that's a lot. I, what that's, you just described is a lot. Yeah. And I only do that for like two shirts. A collar tab? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have metal ones. But most of the time I just don't care. Yeah. And, like, or I don't purchase the shirt with a collar that I'm going to be worried about. Yeah. And like if you're worried about my collar, like that's on you, bub. Yeah. But like that's the thing is like collars and like home care have, I'm tying it back into the book. We're not getting off topic. Those things have changed more perhaps than dating actually has. What Tinder has done is made the time commitment less and so therefore has opened up hookup culture to women. Yes. Because God knows that in every historical romance we've ever read, all the rakes and all the dukes are participating in a hookup culture designed for them. Yeah, exactly. So here's my thing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what did Tinder do? Tinder made everything faster. I also see the result, which is like the opening up of hookup culture to women. Mm -hmm. But like, what's the middle part? What's the if then? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, why is it that speed opened up hookup culture to women? Is it speed? Is it just like, what is it? I don't think it's speed because I think if you you were participating in non-heterosexual hookups. Like hookup culture has been a thing for a really long time, right? There's always been a place where you could go to hook up with someone. Like that's why gay bars were the places that people could go to not only be safe, but also hook up safely. Straight bars did the same thing though. Sure. Straight, no, I don't think that's right because lesbian culture is famously a culture of like pretty monogamous long-term relationships compared to male gay culture. But I mean... So that's not it. What I'm thinking specifically, though, is like Grindr came out of a particular kind of club scene that was also old, you know, places that like Oscar Wilde would frequent. I understand that. I'm talking about women. Right. And so I like I don't think it's the speed thing that Tinder opened up for women. But what is it then? What is it about Tinder that opened up hookup culture to women? Is it weird to say that just like acceptability? Here's the thing. That might just be it. Like it became so ubiquitous and like, you know, people who have met on Tinder and gotten married that it allowed you kind of a space where it would be acceptable and be like, well, I tried. Even if you weren't really trying, you were just hooking up, you know? Right. You have that plausible deniability. I think it's that where it's like, you know, meeting on the internet and just like being honest about it versus like, oh, you met someone on the internet or like you met someone on an app. It's like, well, who are you to do that? But especially that geared toward women. Here's the thing though. Hookup culture has always existed. Then it's always existed with women participants. I guess it's like the agency in it and the like ownership of it that's changed through Tinder. Yeah, and that we can accept that women have agency over a hookup culture. Mm -hmm. In spite of this fact, people will often think of Tinder as a problematic space. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just taking a moment to try and wrestle with that. Because in my head, I'm like, bro culture. But then I'm also like, it's operating on multiple platforms, right? Because it has allowed women to kind of take ownership of their sexuality in a way. But also, did we give something up in going to Tinder? Because men aren't even really looking at the photos when they're swiping. So I wish I could be like, oh, it's just superficial, right? Like that. That would be an easy way to be critical of it. But men are just so horny. They're just so entitled to their own sexual desire that they'll swipe right, see if you like them, and then think about it later. Yeah, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game for them. Whereas I think women are actually, even though it's hookup culture, are actually thinking through their swipes and Mm -hmm. doing the filtering and doing the work for men. So that would be a problem. And that comes from a place of fear, but also fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, if you meet someone in a bar, maybe they're not the cutest, but they're nice to you or they're funny and you'll talk to them and then like you can allow attraction to build before you go home with them mm-hmm. whereas like on tinder you are making like a snap judgment based on appearance you're making a snap judgment then that opens up the epistolatory move of like what are you up to what are you into like for salvo and i think one of the things that is really interesting that this book talked a lot about was the dopamine hit of a text Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that Tinder not only sells itself as where it's like dating has always been a game, but now it's like an actual game on your phone. Yeah, it's actually fun. And it asks you if you want to keep playing. If you run out of matches in your geographic area, it says, do you want to keep playing? We can open up or you can buy more swipes. It's monetized itself. There are ads that you swipe on. And yeah. And I think in that way, this book made a particular sense to me through this idea of like the dopamine hit and then like constantly checking your phone. And like it is 
with speed because people used to wait for letters and you'd be super fucking stoked when like the Pony Express rode through and like here is like five pages from whatever, yeah. whatever. But now it's like you're super stoked to see if your joke landed in real time. But that's texting. Mm-hmm. That's also social media. Mm-hmm. That's not Tinder specific. I mean, I think Tinder brought that into meeting new people with the express desire of hooking up. Right. Maybe some people are looking for a relationship. Sure. But that express desire of some kind of I hate to say romantic, but for lack of a better word right now, a romantic connection. Mm-hmm. And like meeting strangers. It's just like there is something ephemeral happening in Tinder mm-hmm. that I don't think was happening before. And I don't know what it is because things like the dopamine hit that existed before meeting strangers with the assumption you're going to hook up. That was like TGI Friday's whole deal when it opened. Eating good in the neighborhood. That's Applebee's. That's Applebee's. Oh my God. I am so like embarrassed for you right now. I'm not embarrassed. You said like, the wrong chain restaurant. I'm just I kidding. I did, but also like when you say eating good in the neighborhood dirty, it's really dirty. Suddenly it's like, I want to hang out at Applebee's. No, <laughs> no I don't. don't. That was a good try. It wasn't a try. I knew I was doing the <laughs> wrong thing. No, I know. I'm joking. It's a joke about me being a dinosaur. No, about like what knowledge is good knowledge to have. Fascinating question. No, that's the joke. It's not a question that I'm explaining the joke. It is a fascinating question, but I just want to put a pin in it because I wasn't asking. Cool, 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 cool. Anyway, right swipe is dealing with a lot of stuff that we're talking about. And like one of the things that's complicated slash maybe uninteresting about this book Mm. is that all of it. It's a lot of tell and very little show. So like you and I have just wrestled for however many minutes about what it is about Tinder that has like changed dating. Uh huh. This book didn't wrestle with any of that. At all. No. And like it kind of paid a little bit of dues where it's like our hero, Samson Lima, has been out of the dating scene because he's been a primary caregiver of his ailing uncle who has Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And so he's presented as a sort of like cinnamon bun, bumbling Prince Charming who just doesn't get the digital age of dating. Yeah. And our heroine is like this cool, cynical, whatever, who's like teaching it to him. Yeah. But she doesn't get it because she doesn't believe in it. So they hook up on a profile. She has a fake profile on her own app that's just a picture of her in a bikini and his his photo on the app was just a picture of his abs. And him holding his goddaughter saying, this isn't my baby. No, that's what he puts on Matchmaker. Okay. Yeah, later on. But they are really playing like the full game of Tinder, even though it's on her app that's somehow feminist and yet we have this like hierarchy of bodies and beautiful bodies and what's a sexy body and what's a socially conditioned sexy body happening, which is an inherently unfeminist project, a patriarchal project. But the thing that drives me crazy is that this app keeps saying like it has a feminist ethos, but everything I know about the app is not. Yeah, everything that we know about the app in the book is not. At the very beginning, she's at this conference. She re-meets Samson, who had ghosted her. So she's like beach bastard. And she gets asked this question and it's like, oh, hey, so like you think you're such a like, you know, feminist, but you employ like 75% of your staff as women. Yeah. And then she like rolls her eyes and she's, you know, it's very much like they hire the best people. Right. They happen to be 75% female. And 20, you know, like even now it's like there are plenty of tech startups that are like 75% dude or 85 or 90 yeah. and nobody and I just asks happen them to, questions. Yeah. And I just happen to be the one hiring the good female talent because they're not hiring the good female talent. Right. And like very much Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's like how many women need to be on the Supreme Court for parody? And she's like nine. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, my God. And she's yeah. like, what? We're 230 years old now. Like, yeah. come on, guys. She makes those good points. Sure. But like, it, but it felt like so much lip service. Like, mm-hmm. I'd already yeah, read. Exactly. I've read that before. It wasn't mind blowing. It's never been mind blowing. But it was like. First, it was pithy and witty. Right. The first time I heard mm-hmm. it. It wasn't pithy or witty in this book. No, it was just a rehashing. And it, it was, was like those workout t-shirts. Like, wake up, coffee, burn. Yeah, exactly. My God. Why is it like that? Because those t-shirts are so prescriptive and like self-aggrandizing without acknowledging like anything that it was like made in Vietnam. Yeah. That consumerism is a large problem it's just people are thinking small and they don't realize they're thinking small and that they are short-sighted and that they are not considering the larger context and implications of what's going on like a woman initiating a conversation does not a feminist app make (laughs) like it's not enough it's not enough yes it's not 
that's more of a rant about the apps. I don't know how the book feels. I don't know how the book feels. Mama, I don't know how the book feels. I think that's one of the problems of the book, Mm -hmm. right? And like, I wanted to like this book. The first, I would say, 40 pages of premise where we understand that she's about to meet this person that she had this incredible sexual connection with and then was ghosted by. I was like, ooh, this is a great premise. This is like akin to enemies to lovers, but slightly different. It's also like second chance romance. Yeah, I'm like super into it. But then he has like a super valid reason for ghosting her, explains himself, apologizes correctly. And then it's like all of the tension is like ripped out of the balloon. And then like the rest of the book pays a particular kind of very strange and yet boring Mm -hmm. attention to why our heroine Re has these massive trust issues. Yeah. Building up a villain, her former boss slash lover who tortured and assaulted and like tried to harpoon and dismantle her career. Building up this amazing villain Mm -hmm. and then taking all of the tension out of that. Yeah, by saying it's because she was ghosted one time. I know. And I was like, uh, I was also really excited to read this book because I was like, wow, it's like a romance novel that's taking the modern dating world seriously. Like these people are going to meet on a dating app. But in actuality, if you took out that first scene, that first movement of them meeting on the dating app, hooking up him, ghosting her air quotes, the book still would work Mm -hmm. because what she meets him, he's a competitor. He's associated with this competitor that she wants to merge with or purchase and like that's enough you know like the thing I think that I was excited about would be the epistolary version of texting because there is that dopamine and it's just not there like the specificity of the pleasure of getting to know someone via digital mediated technological space the liminal space as it were Mm -hmm. of knowing someone and not really knowing someone Mm -hmm. that would be a cool thing totally Uh, it's not here not at all it's not here there's this fearfulness also of this new way of meeting people Mm-hmm. that feels a little unfair. Not only unfair, but also like really undercut what this book is ostensibly selling, uh-huh. which is like, here's a tech genius woman who has been really undercut by her Silicon Valley boss. She's built an entire empire on her own and she's weathered the rumors and everything else that goes with being a woman in tech. So there's so many echoes of really important things in this book, right? There's like Gamergate and that's an incredibly interesting and really fruitful place to delve into women in tech Mm -hmm. and like what it is that women face there and like why the rules that she sets up for herself on crush would be safe and like Mm -hmm. why like someone would choose to do that yeah but it's like we gloss over it we have this like weird resonance and then we don't move into it and Mm -hmm. then it's like we have me too in spades but like we don't delve into it and like you know we have the CTE which we delve into but not really especially in terms of activism which yeah. was like echoes of Colin Kaepernick yeah. and then it's like whoop I'm like Nothing. what are we doing because it's not filled with sex scenes listeners <laughs> it does have a lot of sex scenes not enough to countenance this kind of <laughs> skippage you made a point in our episode about covers that these cartoon covers make it really difficult to read a heat this book has the word vulva in it sure does Um, you cannot tell <laughs> from the cover no and to be not. honest I think like maybe if this had a sexy cover I would have been like I'm here for the sex scenes and not the interrogation of our current dating climate you know what I mean yeah and if I had come for that reason I think I would have been more into it maybe this cover is doing a disservice to the book I think I'll never know because I will never re-experience this book without the context of this neutered cover neutered is the exact right word for this cover. We'll put it up on all of our social medias, but like Re is described as a woman who feels herself too much. She's too much a black woman. Her hair is too much. Her body's too much. She's too much, except when she's in Samson Lima's arms mm-hmm. because he's a massive, like Jason Momoa, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Samoan type. But on this cover, that dude looks like Harry Shum Jr. with a tan. He is very live. He potentially but he doesn't look like he's not there's a big me, man to me I'm like there's very little legible about him except his skin tone is lighter than the heroines yep and he's looking at a phone and so this is the kind of thing where people would be like oh this book is so diverse there are two brown people on this there cover. are two brown people but it's like too wealthy <laughs> 
like uber wealthy uber wealthy very powerful in their own right like that's still what's interesting about these characters although I do think don't get me wrong I think it's great that there's a best selling romance novel with two people of color legible people of color on totally. the cover it's just why does it have to be a cartoon cover and how does that somehow like take like the bite out of it like how does it make it more palatable to and, people but, but, who wouldn't like, have bought a clinch cover of two people of but color. why are we worried about making it more palatable like I don't know. why can't people it just are. be why can't these be two people in love you know what I mean like why can't they be two people in lust why are they cartoons who aren't even looking at each other yeah it feels unfair <laughs> it feels like a cop-out and I know why people like these covers because I asked on Instagram why people liked the covers and they said things like I feel comfortable reading this on a train but that's more why are you worried about what strangers on a train are thinking about what you're reading because women are conditioned to worry about what strangers think about them yeah but you have to stop it's hard to you stop. have to push through sure the first time you do it gets easier every time after that mm-hmm. we don't need to be putting floaties on ourselves okay we should just push through we just gotta swim sure we've got to own what we like we've just got to own what we like and this cartoon cover feels like a way of dismissing romance and saying we've got to make it look like something else for it to be credible chiclet yeah we've got to make it look like something else I hate that that hurts me because it's just compromising in a public space and to be honest like public transit what do you think is going to happen especially now in the digital age where it's like most of us are reading these books on kindles most of us are reading these on our phones it's like what does a cover that actually is explicitly what it is I mean I don't know I'm not in marketing and like that's where these decisions are being made like authors have precious little say in the kinds of covers that they get and maybe you're fearful because you think someone's going to say something to you and talk to you on public transit but that's happening no matter what you're reading yeah that's like happening if you're existing we've all got to be brave and it feels so silly and so small but it does matter it does to matter. say i like this thing unashamedly not only no guilty it, pleasures i mean no guilty pleasures which is a you know whatever but also like <laughs> the thing about the cartoon cover where you said that this is a cop-out and like one of our esteemed author friends said something very similar about Berkeley Romance where it's like suddenly they have diverse authors but every single one of those diverse authors got a cartoon cover. Yeah. And like that's on purpose. Yeah. And it sucks. Like Sarah McLean just got an amazing clinch cover. And, and by diverse we mean racially diverse. Yes. That is what we mean. Still cis, still het. Yes. And like when that was pointed out to me and you know like didn't take more than a cursory google search of berkeley's slate of new books and i was like oh shit they are all card and including their non-het you know like yeah they're red white and royal blue which oh, is yeah, yeah. yeah that is a cartoon cover about two gay dudes and what is it to neuter a romance on the cover it's to deny female sexuality or sexuality it's to deny sexuality and hold on yeah to deny sexuality of marginalized sexualities yes so women's sexuality full stop and gay sexuality that's what it's doing right and so like as the genre is like celebrating itself which you know cool 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 <coughs> however it's like at this like really weird shortstop mm -hmm. which is like I don't know it's like you have to be like this whatever to like get the cover that is your book and like yeah. you have to be this whatever but then it also like we live in a capitalist regime so then it is like you care about numbers in terms of like selling it and if this means that more people are gonna buy the right swipe like I get it clinch covers are a joke but we have to decide if our project is seeding and saying you're right it's stupid let's do something else and being like I get why it's a joke but it's also all of these other things and it's worth considering like how are we gonna do this are we gonna own this or are we gonna deny it and if you're gonna deny it why make sure you're doing it for the right reasons right because like people who have made clinch covers a joke are doing it because they're making sexuality in that way a joke right and I think that's exactly right and also one of the things that this book brings up where it's like can you reform a broken structure from the inside right or do you have to walk yeah and I think this book doesn't really land on an answer no which I wish it had but you see our heroine working from the inside and our hero working from the outside right and you know both of them have their compromises and both of them have their achievements and like I think ultimately the cartoon cover is going to be like the fulcrum of Inside Outside. Yeah. I want to talk about the two big problems of this novel, which is 
women in tech and CTE and the NFL. I have a big problem with the NFL. I have chosen that to be my little peach crate that I stand on as far as anti-professional sports or professional sports reform. Professional sports reform because you aren't as competitive as I am and as team driven as I am without enjoying a sport. You're talking to a person who was born in Wisconsin where Packers is a religion. Yes, but the NFL, whenever you pay for a ticket, whenever you buy a jersey, whenever you buy a fucking bumper sticker, that money goes to the NFL. And who runs the NFL? Is it this diverse cast of athletes on the field? It sure is not, Morgan. It certainly is not. Is it the one percenters? Old, craggy white men with significantly younger mistresses. Sure is, Morgan. How many black owners are there in the league, Morgan? Zero, Zero. Isabel. That's how many. And the owners are the ones who ultimately benefit and have total unchecked power. Further, the CTE thing. Yeah, the NFL doesn't even support its players after they leave, right? It or has. support them as exactly. They don't, and they should. Mm-hmm. There are workers' rights considerations that are being thrown to the wind because look how much money we give them when they're playing. Also, we should then consider the option for a moment of what is it 32 craggy old heterosexual white men on their third wives who own a vast 150 160 deep team of players who don't look like that you feel passionately about the NFL and to be honest the reason I'm not taking on the NBA is because basketball is my favorite sport I love the way they dribble up and down the court I get it second place tennis no one asked third place Do you not have a third? It's just those two. (laughs) I like going to baseball games in the stadiums. I do too. It's really fun. I don't like watching baseball or hockey on television because I think it's boring as fuck. Oh, Richard Sterling. Mm. um, The guy who owned the bad Los Angeles team until they were really good. The Chargers? The Chargers. Mm. And all of these tapes came out about him being racist. And on Mm. this 30 for 30, they interviewed players and they expressed that they were called Buck. By fuck, him fuck. to them Ouch. to their faces. Oh my god! He used to bring in his white wealthy friends to the locker room while they were bathing, and he would point them out. Jesus fucking Christ! Like, yeah, no, there is a mindset of ownership. ownership. And in fact, they are called owners Owners. in the NFL to this day. The NBA had to change that term following the Richard Sterling case. Here's the thing about being a Packers fan, because it is owned by the fans. Okay, fair enough. We're talking about the institution of the NFL. I know. And like, this is why, like, I gave up football two years ago, cold turkey, one of the hardest decisions I've ever made because it's like one of the ways in which I interact with my dad and it's one of the ways in which I interact with people and it's one of the ways in which like knowing the local sports team and the score of the Sunday night game gives you just like one more card in your small talk deck. Yeah. And so giving it up was not a hardship in the sense like it's cool to have my Sundays but in the sense of like having that kind of knowledge that made me feel like a part of something and like it was easy for me to dismiss a lot of the institutional structural problems of the NFL by being a Packers fan because in Packerland it is community owned it's the only one and now the NFL has made it impossible for any other city to do that Green Bay Packers were grandfathered in but is also not insulated from the institution itself and how bad it is like further for those of you individual listeners Nezabo makes a really good point about the personal affect of a football team that you have a team that you support I want to point out when you live in a city that has a pro team for sure your personal tax dollars your cash your income are partially getting diverted to these mega wealthy owners so that they can maintain the team for the good of the city further how do those owners use that money occasionally they use it in cover-ups for their players domestic abuse scandals a ton of it a ton of it goes into stuff like that and why do these players commit acts of violence besides the fact that violence is an acceptable language for men to speak in in this current world well probably because they have a lot of fucking concussions and when you have a lot of fucking concussions you have a hard time discerning between right and wrong often further you have been on a pedestal since you were in high school probably even before Before. that sending you on this road and so rules don't apply to you in the same way ever applied to you in the same way and it's a huge 
systemic problem. Yes. And so the NFL is a space that I, for all of these reasons and more, choose not to give my money to. Not the least of which is like 51% of fans of the NFL are women. And like, I don't want a bedazzled Aaron Rodgers jersey. I don't want it to be in bright pink. I want a regular Aaron Rodgers jersey that fits my body. God damn it. And (laughs) as a paying participant for many, many years. And then I was never catered to because girls can only be interested in sports if they're trying to like lure a man or like make themselves more attractive in that way I'm like bullshit like I know all of these rules because I watched football with my brothers and my dad and it was a language we could speak together I think the important thing to keep in mind is that if you care about the NFL you have to know that the NFL doesn't care about you it doesn't care about it doesn't care about its players it doesn't doesn't care care about about the institution Mm -hmm. and like further and one of the things it does care about the institution it doesn't care about the players it doesn't care about human beings right and in fact is actively destroying people and has been for fucking ever and like the other thing that I wish this book had gotten a little into more it's like the NFL is painted in all of its shades of villainy which is correct Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I thought was especially interesting was like this team indoctrination question like at one point our hero Samson Lima walks off the field when the coaches tell him that his best friend who just got concussed has to go back and play and he's like if you make him play I walk they call his bluff he walks out in the middle of a playoff game. Mm -hmm. And then the quarterback calls him a traitor, a la Mm -hmm. like Kaepernick and what it is to actively protest and Mm -hmm. then be blacklisted and blackballed. Can you imagine having a job that you don't understand yourself as a worker? Like it's your whole identity? I mean, I can because more and more I get emails from the place that I work now that calls me family. Yeah. And it's it's weird. You're not there. I'm not family. And like the idea that you would call me something like that so that you could exploit me or engender a feeling where I would allow myself to be exploited is weird. It is. And like it doesn't just happen in sports, but sports is an obvious one because team and like nation get really enmeshed. And we see that in this book in a really interesting way. But like fucking NCAA, like the idea that our colleges are farm teams for a national league that makes billions. National leagues. No, thank you. Yeah. So I gave up the NFL and it was a heartbreak. But like it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Stop it. They don't care about you. Please stop. But I think football... I wish wish this book had dealt more with all of this. Football is also an interesting thing to talk about in context of this book. Because one thing that I get queasy over is physical violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone gets queasy over all violence. But I want to talk about physical violence, the threat of physical violence, physical threat... It's not cool. I think we would all say physical violence is not cool. No, it's not. Football is actually like a physically violent sport and it has all these repercussions that are central to our character, our hero's identity. However, the book deeply fetishizes the threat of violence against another man in protection of a woman. In some deeply incongruous ways in this book. So our heroine is at Annabelle, the owner of matchmaker.com's home, Mm -hmm. preparing to give a presentation as to why she should buy the company, making her offer. Former abusive boyfriend and boss enters her room. She is overcome with anxiety about this. And she texts Samson, who is in the same house because the owner of Matchmaker is his aunt. Please come to my room and please open the door no matter what. Peter is blocking her, is intimidating her, is coming on to her. Samson enters the room, physically threatens Peter and says, I hope you understand I could kill you with my bare hands right now. Mm-hmm. And the book goes, what a man. And that's not the only time it does that. No, it also talks about her brother becoming violently angry when he discovers that she was in an abusive relationship. Literally out of nowhere, he has bloody knuckles and there's a hole in the wall and her mom's like, he's very upset. I've never seen him like this. He's yeah, like, and she's like, my teddy bear brother? Why would he say that? And then there's this conversation that is interesting and good. It talks about how she is 
is a very powerful person, but every once in a while you need to take a rest. But the argument is you need to take a rest because your brother's job is to protect you and he is going to do that through physical violence. Right. And that like literally came out of nowhere in the book. We didn't know anything about this brother other than he was sweet. We didn't know anything about this brother other than like he was a better emotional communicator with their mother. We didn't know anything and suddenly there's a hole in the wall and I was like, this is not behavior of a mature adult who what knows. What Samson did is not the behavior of a mature adult. Right. Like Peter gets to be a ponce. Like keep him that way. Like make him make physical threats. But that means that our hero should not roll in that fucking mud. And in the context of the book itself, violence doesn't actually fix the problem. It never has. Wielding power as far as influence, honesty, using your platforms, connecting with other women. That's what actually allows our hero to fail. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't problematize that threat of physical violence. It sort of gives us this world in which that's the way men talk to each other and that's okay. And this is the way women talk to men and that's the best we can do. But like, again, this book felt so incongruous. Like those scenes of violence really erupted for me in the same way that like I never was able to anticipate them because they felt so out of character for the men that she was talking about. And it felt so out of character for the book. Like there were other times where things would come up and the men in the novel would handle it better and like handle it with words and Samson has these two really good friends from his time in professional football one of whom has just recently adopted a daughter and like there are really funny scenes of like don't swear in front of this kid yeah don't do this don't do that where it's like masculinity gets to have tenderness and masculinity gets to have an emotional intelligence that is like we can talk about this and we can talk and be safe with one another and share our vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. and like there's absolutely no violence in that sphere so then the way that this book then as you so correctly term it fetishizes violence on behalf of women Mm -hmm. was like what the fuck we just do though yeah like what and the book explicitly says like sometimes success isn't the best revenge sometimes revenge is the best revenge and so I think this problem of violence is getting into another question I wanted to talk about which is this idea of revenge Cool. Let's talk about it. Revenge. I'm into it. As a general rule, I like revenge. Me too. I enjoy seeking revenge. I find that it gives my life purpose and direction. (laughs) I love finding revenge. I think it gives me a big buzz. I like making people who have made me feel foolish look foolish. I like hurting people who have hurt me. I enjoy revenge, but I'm going to say I know that that is bad. I know that I should stop. Good. I I try to stop myself when I find myself to be seeking revenge because I do know an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Does part of me say maybe the whole world should be blind, this bastard world? Maybe we should all start anew without our eyes. We should think about the world differently. And the only way to get there is by plucking out everybody's fucking eyeballs. Maybe sometimes I feel that way when I try to talk myself out. But I've realized that I'm projecting my own small problems onto larger problems in the world and that that energy would be better spent working towards institutional change rather than covering someone's car in mayonnaise. Also, like, just key it. Mayonnaise is funnier. <laughs> Thank you for bringing... And I'll tell you why. <laughs> Welcome to my TED Talk. <laughs> covering someone's car in mayonnaise is funnier than keying it. Mayonnaise has acid in it and will still fuck up the paint job. It will also get hot in the sun <laughs> or even like if you cover if you get the giant mayonnaise from mm. Costco Which for example don't go to Sam's Club go to Costco you're a lefty live like it you go to Costco you get your big tubs of mayonnaise you dead of night I'm talking like 4am because you want to be close to sunrise cover their car in mayonnaise it's not that hard it'll spread itself for the most part once you get it going and then you leave the car as the sun rises it heats the mayonnaise their car is now covered in hot mayo and if they want to fix the problem they have to maneuver their way into the car (laughs) through the hot mayonnaise and then they have to drive their car to a car wash and once it's washed off with any luck it's fucked up their paint job because it's vinegar and eggs it's mostly vinegar it'll eat up their car especially if it gets hot so that was my TED talk why it's better to cover a car in mayonnaise than key it takeaway 
do these in the northern hemisphere between May and September 1 for maximum effect. You've got to sit on it. You've got to really have hate in your heart to do this. True. You also have to have time. You have to have time. Do not do this if you have to buy individual small Mm -mm. tubs of mayonnaise. Mm -mm. Also, don't do this with good mayo. Don't do this Mm -mm. with your dukes. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Although if you did it with a bunch of dukes, holy shit, if you went to the south, bought a bunch of dukes, you leave those empty containers on top of that car. Around their car so they know how much you valued this experience. I would read a romance novel with a scene in that. Listen. Listen. Listen, listen, listeners. I do not officially condone revenge. Having said that, a lot of the motivation in our main character is vengeance. Yes. And I found it refreshing that the book didn't necessarily discount revenge as a motivating factor. Mm -hmm. And like maybe we should think about revenge as something like justice. Which I think this book does a really interesting job where she's like, you know, success is the best revenge. And her mom is like, no, sometimes revenge is the best revenge. And then she's like, well, I finally got vengeance on him by coming out and like talking about the abuses that I suffered. And her brother's like, that's not vengeance. That's justice. Well, what happens because of her act of vengeance is that he has to leave his company, which is justice against him. Right. Will he be replaced by a similar type? Obviously. Probably. That's what happened to Uber. What happens literally everywhere. But yeah, that's justice. I mean, like revenge gets a bad rap. For sure. And oh, (laughs) you're like, do I mean for sure? I mean, here's where I'm at. Revenge gets a bad rap. I think it energizes and motivates. I think anger and rage is a tool that women especially oftentimes are told to tamp down. And that's not necessarily in their best interest because a motivating energy is a motivating energy. I mean, I'll agree. And I, I've said this on numerous occasions. I watched a very, I can't remember the title, but it was an after school lifetime movie about rape, date rape specifically of a teenager. And I remember watching this movie with my mom. And I'm going to give you the premise so that listeners, you understand what I'm talking about. This poor girl, date raped by the quarterback, whatever. It takes her a long time to tell her parents. Her parents own a tow truck company and like they're just totally devastated. And, you know, the dad ends up assaulting and then killing the quarterback and then goes to prison and then this isn't the best part of the story that's all not great but then mom and daughter take over the tow truck company and then they like meet up with the younger brother of no dad doesn't kill him he assaults him and then they meet up with the rapist at one point at like a county fair where they're like towing somebody's vehicle because it's like got a flat tire and the girl headbutts her rapist I'm like I am always always down for a female headbutt against any kind of human being abuse but one of the things that was weird for me about how this book treated the line of vengeance justice was that our heroine was afraid of justice and operated her revenge in a really quiet manner. I mean, I understood from the very beginning that Peter, her old boss slash lover, was a bad person. But his villainy only existed in the spaces between sentences. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the very end that like most of the stuff was revealed. And I was like, this is a missed opportunity to really talk about and look at why someone would be motivated to tear someone down economically and not personally. Yeah. And like in that sense, it's like vengeance is a complicated emotion and it should be evaluated and like exercised and like delved into and in all of the ways in the same way that like our hero is approached by the former quarterback who called him a traitor for leaving after this concussion Mm. episode. And he's like, I want a public apology and that's enough of my vengeance. That's closure. This book is obsessed with closure in a really weird way Mm -hmm. that I like couldn't get behind. I'm like, a public apology is great and like, I want to see that on all of the talk shows, but like, I also wanted to see like the interstitial actions of revenge. If we're going to talk about vengeance, if we're going to talk about that as a motivator, if we're going to talk about that as like a key operator in a personality or a move or a shift or like a building, let's see it. This gets into my evergreen, complicated relationship with the idea of HEA as it exists now in romance. Because what this book is actually working towards is 
this closure Mm -hmm. for the two main characters. These closures have to do with events that happened preceding their relationship and actually have very little to do with their relationship as it exists now. Totally. And the traumas of those non-closures don't affect their relationship enough, frankly. Yeah, for a romance novel, because in my mind, like a very important indicator of a romance novel is that the romance is what is motivating the action. It is the problem. It is the solution. Mm -hmm. It is the action, which is not the case in this book. So maybe it should have a cartoon cover. Like maybe it's not a romance. Could be chiclet. Could be chiclet, except it centers the male protagonist way too much for it to be chiclet. So it's like this whole other kind of book. Glad we agree on that point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in all of those cases, I was like the obstacle to your relation. There isn't enough of one. Right. Like at first I thought it was going to be the second chance ghosting thing. And then it wasn't that. And then it's off her trust issues. But like Samson Lima has like this immediate key to understanding her. And like that's off the table. So then it's like all of the tension of the romance is like these people clearly belong together. They clearly love each other. They clearly trust each other. They clearly give each other their vulnerabilities. It's all of this like externalities that like are happening around their relationship and I'm like okay their relationship is the eye of the storm no but like their relationship is just like a balm to the storm it's not actually the central mover in the book yeah at all okay let's get on track okay do you want to start with weirdest or sexiest 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 my sexiest part was the sex scene at his house not Annabelle's where it's rough ready it's like after the episode with Peter and they're having sex on all fours and then there's like a mirror out of nowhere and he's like but let's do it this way and I was like that's great my sexiest part would be the final sex scene where they don't have condoms and they still have successful intercourse and make a point about how it's not okay it's not actually like if I think about my sexiest sex scenes no that was it it was my sexiest sex scene it really had a project that <laughs> it did it did it was, it was really not sex subtle about yeah, it it was not subtle but whatever I like cool. having a project sometimes projects can be sexy but yeah that would be my sexiest part weirdest part I have a lot of weirdest parts but I want to break this into two weirdest parts I want to do weirdest sex scene and I want to do weirdest part part weirdest sex scene go okay in the car when he's going down on her and the reason why it's (laughs) the reason why it's my weirdest scene I was like oh this is like super hot they like go to this abandoned parking lot and they get in their car and she like moves the driver's thing all the way forward but he's been described as this like extremely large man and she's in a small electric car so yeah I spent way too much time thinking about the physics of how he was going down on her in her itty bitty car when he's a six foot four man. I reread this scene and it still continued to not make yeah. like physical sense. Here's like, a question for you. Physic sense. Here's a question for you. Physics. Here's a question for you. Yes. How much of the suspension of disbelief is the reader's responsibility in romance and how much of it is the author's responsibility in romance? Here's my controversial answer. It depends on the writing. <laughs> If the writing is good, I can suspend a motherfucking load. But you're conscientiously suspending it if the writing is good? No, I'm like in it. Exactly. So you're saying it's the author's responsibility. You have to write a book good enough that I suspend my disbelief because I just want to be in it. That's the other part. Like she spent so much time describing the physicality of both of these characters that I felt like I had a really good grip on like how much space they would take up in the world. Yeah. And like I know what essentially a Tesla sedan looks like. Yeah. And like... Like how you would get one person's like foot on. You live in the north side of Chicago. Everyone knows you know what a Tesla looks like. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I was just like, her one foot's on the seat and her one's on the, and he's like all the way crouched and he's like, but he doesn't care. And I'm like, my dude, I don't think you can actually crouch there. Everybody gets cramps in lovemaking. Sure. It happens. But like, tell me about the cramp. Don't tell me he doesn't care about it. Like, tell me like he cramped and he powered through. Like, that's romantic. Yeah. That's romantic. That is. That's real love. I just, I spent too much time trying to figure out the car dynamic and not enough time about like the romantic, physical, lovemaking dynamic. And then I was like entirely thrown out. And then she says this other thing where she's like, I don't come from oral sex, but I like it. And I was like, that's cool. And that's a good thing to say. That's a great thing to say. I was really excited that they said that. But then he's like, well, you came just fine before. And she's like, actually, I didn't. And I'm like, I don't want to rehash this right now, though. (laughs) It's like every opportunity of this amazing sex scene to throw me out threw me out (laughs) that's my weirdest sex scene it's hard to explain to a man and it's also hard to explain to women who have been conditioned in our like third wave feminism we were all socialized to think like 
having an orgasm is feminist and it's part of being a good woman and take responsibility for your own orgasm. And so it's hard to really come to terms with the fact that like sometimes sex can be pleasurable for a woman without orgasm. Should a woman have orgasms if that's something she can do? Yes. Is it fine if she doesn't have an orgasm if that's something she can't do? Can she still enjoy sex? Yes. It's not so simple. No, like the shades of gray of like how a woman's initial plateau and move upward and then second plateau and then like actual crisis and then denouement. I'm like crisis. That's like I know that's what they called it, but we don't have to use that word. Peak. (laughs) Thank you. Jesus Christ. Masters and Johnson fucked up a whole whole generation. The Washington University can no longer have a sociology department because of Masters and Johnson fucked up research so bad. So bad. Listen, not least of which was calling an orgasm (laughs) a crisis. Here's the thing. Suspension of disbelief. Realism versus fantasy in romance is a really interesting paddling pool to Mm -hmm. splash around in if you're into this kind of thing. I personally really admire our author, Alicia Rye, for taking on this idea that sex can be pleasurable for a woman without orgasm Mm -hmm. unapologetically and that sex can be pleasurable. You don't have to come from oral sex. That doesn't make you a weirdo if you don't do that. Also, it doesn't mean you're experiencing the world or the world's pleasures or having less intimate of an experience without it. I really admire that. But I totally understand everything you're saying and I I mean, I like, it's super valid. I don't even understand where because his shoulders or his knees are. And that's the thing, too, about like realism, where it's like if you spend enough time explaining somebody's proportions and also the way that they feel about their own proportions in the mm-hmm. world. It's yeah. Like, the thing is, is like this book is very invested in a project and is very invested in a pedagogy of a right and wrong way to feel. Sex scenes are sexiest when they're void of all of our political shit. When you can just understand them and experience them because they're purely corporeal. Your feelings on consent aren't an issue because it's a non-issue because consent has been achieved subtly and correctly in the book, right? So now you can just enjoy it without thinking about that because all this corporeal stuff. You know, this book has a project and the sex scenes are serving that project. And Mm -hmm. so they're never going to be like priest, You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And in that sense, it's like, boy, I'm like 100% down for the feminist project of like, you know, not all pleasure has to achieve orgasm. And like everybody needs like active and enthusiastic consent. But like maybe just describe it without having like exposition. Yeah. Show don't tell. But it's hard because an orgasm follows a narrative arc. It's hard to have resolution without an orgasm in a sex scene in a book. Or a story. What's your weirdest part? So I would say that my weirdest part, it's not exactly weird. I would say it's disappointing. I'm like, (laughs) I'm not upset. I'm not upset. I'm just disappointed. (laughs) And it's this revenge thing, especially as it comes to Trevor, the bad quarterback, but also as it comes to Peter, where it's like, if you're going to have a villain, and this is where I think like, I personally prefer historical romances because villainy is writ with a capital V and it doesn't need to come with like a snidely whiplash mustache. (laughs) But like, if you're going to go for a villain, like put him in it, you know? And like the fact that Peter casts this long shadow. Peter is kind of snidely whiplash though. Totally. I mean, he's basically a Winklevoss. He owns a yacht. Uh, And she like, they had sex on the yacht. Now she wants to burn the yacht. I'm like, okay, whatever. And it's like, I know who this person is. He looks a little bit like Army Hammer. Okay. But like, if you're going to have a bad actor, like put them on the page and like put Mm -hmm. them on the page in ways that he's like continuing to harass her. And like, this is a moment where like romance gets to be larger than life. So sometimes microaggressions and harassment are sort of hard to quantify. And like, that's how like gaslighting gets part of it. And she talks about being gaslit all the time, but we don't see it. We're just told she was gaslit. Right. And that it has these repercussions that we can see. And I'm like, kind of on board for that but I also like if you're gonna have a main villain which this book Mm -hmm. ostensibly does put them on the page make their villainy part of it but I think this is actually lending into like what I would say my overall weirdest part was sure and I'm, I'm gonna have a hard time working through it because it's all pretty fresh because I believe romance has a project without having a project 
Mm-hmm. This book has a project, mm-hmm. meaning this book has a goal. It wants to prove a point. It wants to point something out. It wants to educate you. It wants to... Th- On more than one front. In some ways, perhaps it's preaching to the choir, mm-hmm. but this book has a project. And if you have a project to point out everything that's wrong with this totem of bad white tech guy, right? You can't make him a good villain because when you make a good villain, you run the risk of creating a Hannibal Lecter an Ursula the Sea Witch, someone who is more beloved than the hero or the heroine themselves. Because a villain is acting so much on their insecurities and their problems and their failings that they have the advantage of it's all right there on the surface in a lot of ways, especially in a book. Like we can connect with them so much more fluidly because we understand our own insecurities and the stuff that we've been through and we can understand how. And we have a little bit of a fantasy about revenge and becoming an asshole because of what's going on in our lives. And we like to fantasize. Like a villain allows us to like live out our fantasy of being the bad person while still making us feel like we're a good person. Also a really good villain gives you fantasies of redemption, which is how a lot of villains get like a second book. Exactly. Having a three-dimensional villain like this guy would undo the project. I don't agree. I'm like, you know, he doesn't even have to be three-dimensional. He could have been just two dimensional (laughs) but like this one dimension where we mostly just get him in shadows and echoes I would have liked to see more of his villainy enacted in like the four years Uh during her building of crush but if we would have seen more of it it would have been overwhelmingly bad like it's either got to be one dimensional just like bad guy and here's why he's bad and he doesn't deserve three dimensionals because whatever excuse he has isn't enough to compensate for what's going on right now or he can be three dimensional for me creating someone like him as a two dimensional character I understand why the author if she made that conscientious choice I understand why because I think she has a larger project here and I think creating a sympathetic villain or creating a far too baroque villain without any sympathy first of all that's just bad writing sure but I think there could have been at least like two or three more interactions it's because this book doesn't have an antagonist and this book doesn't have an like an antagonizing incident this book doesn't have and like anything animating anything that works as an antagonist for this relationship it's like CTE okay but like that's resolved immediately and like you know bad boy in tech but she has like her angel roommate who immediately swoops in with all of this money it's like none of the consequences of the things that are being described the project itself is constantly undermined by her like excellent network and good luck yeah she yeah I can totally relate to the idea that the heroes and heroines are too good and the villains are too shadowy shadowy too bad but like not bad bad enough one note yeah yeah like their madness doesn't move yeah but like I said it's the fact that this book has a project and we've discussed ways in which that project gets in the way of it working like a typical romance novel mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that it makes all of the like plot moves mm-hmm. it still doesn't hit the beats yeah well it hits the beats but it doesn't carry it's, the tune it's not interesting because of that it's just because this book has a larger project what's Fully, its larger project its larger project is talking about me too and it's talking about cte and it's talking about like how we fight bad institutions and it's meant to be a demonstration of how we fight bad institutions however because we have almost we focus 400 pages almost 400 pages and we have a lot of problems we don't actually get like a really full realization of how to fight any one of them because we have to come up with all of these things like she has a wealthy former model friend who's agoraphobic who gives her all of her money to start her business we have these little deus ex machinas throughout the story that resolve the problems before they can be like really like you know if we would have just chosen one thing one thing and really worked on it we could have said something really holistic and complete about the idea of how to fight bad institutions um, whether internally or externally and we could have also maybe left some of that project out of some of the places because the project would have been so overarching undercurrent that it wouldn't have affected the sex scenes it wouldn't have had to be called out we could have been shown and not told if we had chosen like a single narrative through which to work the project does that make sense yes Romance or no man's. No man's. No man's. I mean, I wouldn't recommend this one. I would recommend her other books. Me too. I love her other books. And which but is it's, why yeah. like, <laughs> it's, 
it's, you know, people, it happens. And I think one of the things that I do really want to say about this book is that this book suffers from first book in a series. It's like, it's setting up a lot of stories in a way that like oftentimes second or even third books are the strongest in a series because all the setup is already done. So you can just like, Click over the dominoes. I just wish all books could be good all the time. I I wish all books could be their best. Wish all books could be their best. Of course. Of course. Of course. I don't know how people felt about this book. It was pretty universally well received. See, here's my thing. I'm like, people tweeted about it, but they were just like, this book is out. I didn't actually see any like feedback on it. People liked it. Well, we followed where this book set a path. And I think oftentimes not enough romance readers who are amazing readers. I think we've conditioned ourselves as romance readers to forgive a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the projects of romance is to be like, what if we didn't forgive romance for all of its stuff sometimes? Or what if in general, we just held it to the standard that it says that it wants to be held at? What if we just stop settling, you know? Yeah. What if we stop settling in our books? And like, not everything is going to be a stunner that an author puts out. Fact. But we don't have to treat it like it is. And we can say that, you know, Alicia Ray's other books have been stunners. Mm -hmm. And that this is an author I will return to. Yeah. But if you're going to buy an Alicia Ray book, maybe not this one. Maybe not this one. If you're going to buy contemporary romance, maybe not this one. Maybe not this one. With that. Loosen your stays. But not your principles. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>